Are you looking to simplify your investments? Check out BMO ETFs. Your asset allocation can have a major impact on whether you will meet your financial goals. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to asset allocation ETFs to complement their portfolios. BMO offers easy-to-use solutions such as the BMO Growth ETF, BMO Balance ETF, BMO All Equity ETF, and more. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically. What was once a popular mutual fund strategy is now available through an ETF with the introduction of the T6 units. T6 units provide a 6% annual payout on a monthly basis, helping retirees meet their cash flow needs. This is available on their balanced and growth asset allocation ETFs. Regular rebalancing means you can spend less time planning your life and more time living it. Learn more at bmoetfs.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get a key to the Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 89. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got uh, Rich Diaz, Acorn Macro Consulting, and back in his UK flat there, and Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management. Boomer with the Patagucci hat uh, on a vacation. Where, where are you? Uh, yeah, I'm in uh, Moab, Utah right now. Going around with Junior. We're crawling around all the, uh, the canyons, lock canyons, biking and all that stuff. And uh, if you ever been to Moab before, it's the exact opposite of, of Rich's flat and and Kit Slano. Moab is uh, you guys wouldn't survive here that well. But to give you an idea, was like I have a, you can't see, if, but I have a T-shirt on here, kind of Moab. But it's a picture of uh, Bigfoot riding a unicorn with a UFO beaming him up. And I think that says everything you need to know about about Moab. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories over there. You'll fit right in. <laughs> Actually, guys, if you ever have a chance to come to Moab, anywhere in Utah to go hiking and stuff, it is beautiful. It is just stunning how nice it is here. But and everyone's here for like a, a adventure tourism. At 5 a.m., everyone's up and about to get going because you got to beat the heat. The heat is just unbelievable here right now in, in July. Uh, but that's the only tourism. There's nothing else going on except the loony hour. Right, Rich? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, right. well, in 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 London, it's June, uh, not July, <laughs> and uh, and it's, we also have to beat the heat here. Uh, it's too hot for London, so I've been hiding out in the office. Uh, we're Is that your bottle of wine in the background? I was going to say we're recording this on uh, on a Thursday, and it's very late, way past my bedtime. Let's, I'm having a nice little little bottle of rosé from the local. Let's see if you can finish that shop. by the end of the episode. Oh boy, oh boy. But uh, no, I'm good, man. It's lots of stuff going on. Um yeah, beautiful. It's just really lovely. Uh, like the weather's great, man. Sometimes you're London Mon- you're heading back to Montreal. Uh Well, I don't know. This is not this is material uh non-public information. No, Steve, no, but, but in general, <laughs> you always go back to Montreal in the summer, so uh, let's Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah, yeah, I'll leave it there. But yeah, Montreal is uh, yeah in the cards regardless. But yeah, I can't wait to get back. But anyway, there you go. That's that's the story. Let's let's get into. It. How are you yeah. doing? Oh, well, it's your yeah, shirt again. Are you wearing the same shirt as last week? Uh, yeah, I only have one shirt. You know, it's uh, <laughs> housing market slowing down once again. So I had to cut my my shirt budget. And 
Yeah, but uh, <laughs> no. Anyways, um, on the on the what should we call it on the Vancouver event, we've had people asking. Uh, so yeah, tickets. I'm hoping if I can get my act together here on the weekend, well, tickets will be released for next week. Uh, so when we drop next week's podcast. My hope is that the tickets will be available again. It's a 300 seat venue in Vancouver. So it'll be a large, our largest event, uh, almost double the size of the the first Vancouver event. So it should be a lot of fun. That's going to be on July 27th. Uh, And like I said, anyone that's listening to the show, you guys will be the first to know. You'll know, you'll know when they'll drop because I will, uh, will definitely promote it. So, Um, but yeah, that's, that's about it. I mean, I think a pretty busy week, um, in, in the fi- in finance right now, I think uh, in financial markets, you know, the inflation scare is back. Everybody's freaking out about the bond market. Um, you know, I can get into the housing stuff, which is, you know, all the housing bears are back. Um, you know, of course, the bank account are raising rates, you know, what, a week or two ago. And, you know, bond yields surging back up. We've got the Canada five-year bond yield. I think it's back to, it's, it hasn't pierced its high, which was, what was it? October. Uh It's right. So (laughs) so the October high was 3.85%. And right now, as I'm looking at my screen, it's at 3.85. So we're right back to those October highs we've seen in the mortgage market. Um, you know, we had three, like, so everybody was basically anyone that was participating in the housing market, I can tell you, everyone has basically been using three year fixed rate mortgages pretty much for the entirety of this year. And so, you know, keep in mind those, those were like five and a half last year. They came down to about 4.7, um, sort of in the spring market of this year. And, you know, people started getting excited again, prices were going accelerating higher. And now you've got your five year or your three year rate again is back to about 5.4, 5.5. So mortgage rates, long story short, are basically back to the highs of last fall. And so this is obviously setting up for what I think is going to be a material slowdown. Now, funny, cause you know, everybody's jumping on Twitter this guy called the bottom. It's now going to drop out from underneath its feet. The crash is resume. It's back on. The crash is back on. Um, yeah, so, you know, taking taking a lot of slack for that. So I'm enjoying it. Well, I don't know. That's not what happened. That's not what the uh, sorry, sorry, Keith. But just that's not what the data from last week was. Right, we were still low supply. Right, there's still low inventory, which I guess is related to supply. And so far, people haven't been squeezed yet as far as the, you know, the great rate reset, which I think we were maybe too early to. So I I trust you. I trust you, Steve. Keith. Well, I mean, I, you know, to that point, again, I'm in Vancouver, so I can tell you like since January or just, I mean, really like the bottom of the market so far, again, could change. I don't pretend to know the future eight months from now. Um, But, uh, you know, your typical detached house is up about 200 to $300,000. Uh, since sort of the bottom of, you know, the fall market last year. So, um, and again, like I, I pointed this out on Twitter, right. Which is like, you know, part of this thesis. And again, I, I you know, I'll be the first to admit, Hey, you don't get everything right. But like, I, I was surprised like that the economy still kind of holding on and the bank of Canada is still raising rates. Like, so, you know, again, as the data comes in, I think people should be willing to sort of change their opinions. And my opinion is like, Yes. <laughs> right. Like my opinion is that right now, whether you're in Vancouver or you're Toronto, I mean, Calgary's all time record high prices. 
Vancouver real estate and for the most part of Toronto, most of those markets, the prices accelerated in the spring, basically reaching the levels of where they peaked at last year in February, March, when interest rates were 2% or mortgage rates were 2%. And so now mortgage rates are not at 4.7 and falling. They're rising back up again. They're at five and a half. You know, a lot of these two, you know, two year mortgages are at 6%. Like, and, and so you got to get stress tested at basically 8%. I mean, something is going to have to give if rates stay at these levels. Um, I think it's logical to conclude that prices will come down. Now, to Rich, to your point, you're asking about like supply and inventory. Like that doesn't change. You're still dealing with like essentially 15 to 20 year lows in inventory. So you're not going to see a material price correction in the next six weeks. Like it, this is going to take time. If it, <laughs> and that's so, but it takes time depending on how the rates hold up. And so it's like, what's the Bank of Canada going to do next? And that's really, or what, what are bond yields going to do next? Which I think is going to be sort of the thesis of this week's show. Keith, well, Keith. I well, I think it's incredible. I, I think Rich just touched on it, or, or Steve, you did. I forget which one opened the window for that for this, but it seems like the narrative has done a one eighty. It's changed very rapidly within what two weeks, ten days, totally something like yeah, something like that. And what what has changed really? Now all of a sudden we you know we've gone from a period where all the central banks have you know they they, they stopped hiking. People were predicting a cut was coming up later on there, stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, I think the Aussies were first to hike rates. And then the Canadians did it. And, you know, the Europeans came out hawkish. And then same thing. You know, the Fed paused, but it was a hawkish pause, as they say. And then Powell was and out then, again yesterday. Yeah. And then like today. He, and again today. Yeah, I think today was the Senate. Yesterday was Congress. No, I meant, sorry, the BOE. Excuse me. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, I wasn't finished. I'm still dancing around. All right, so sorry, then you sorry. had, yeah, you, you, you know, the uh, the Swiss, they hiked by 25, the Norwegians, and then, you know, whatever the hell they're doing over there on, are they on Threadneedle Street? Where's the Bank of England? What, what street? Yeah, that's it, I think. Is it Threadneedle? Yeah. Uh, you know, they come out with like the, the, the mad bomber today with, with 50. But if you put all this together, now all of a sudden we've gone from a world that went from like zero to you know, three, four, five percent, depending on where you were. And everyone paused and we're waiting for something to happen. And all the only thing that happened is that inflation has come down enough. And now all of a sudden, central banks, you know, I talk about risk has been synchronized around the world. Here's yet another example of that, just sort of, you know, confirming or affirming that that view. That now central bank policy has once again been synchronized. Everyone is hawkish. So now we're going to have this moment coming up where you know we've talked about before something will break or it won't break maybe it's not in canada it could be somewhere else but they are quite determined to slow down inflation and the only way you can do that is by you know slowing the economy now one thing that's not that doesn't get brought up a lot or sometimes it, gets, it does get brought up but it's you know in broken english i guess um, even though the central banks are tightening the fiscal side of the equation, you know, we've had a really good conversation about that recently. That is still very stimulus. So like, for example, the Canadians now, what do we have? 40 billion for our budget deficit. And that should be around what? 2%? That's 2% of GDP almost. Yeah, roughly. And, I have and, to check. And Sorry. Always, yeah, 
Yeah, so we're we're a little over two trillion, I think, for uh, for GDP. So forty billion. You know, you do your math, Rich. The thing that you do. Hey, Keith. But fiscal stimulus, like it's it, they can't. The central banks are trying to slow things down, and meanwhile, governments are still like like spending like you know it's nineteen ninety nine again. Keith, I have a question for you. Do you know, um, so Jack Farley, F- Jack Farley, Farley, um, with BlockFi there, he just put out, he's got, he's, he's just cranking out, BlockWorks, sorry. He's just cranking out the interviews. Um, but he just did an interview with uh, Michael Howe. I'm, uh, Keith, do you know Michael Howe? I know that name. Yeah. Cro- cross-border capital. I, I know it loosely. I, I don't know him. I can't okay. call him up. So he, but he, I, he, I know Jack though. Yeah. He so, so, Jack a few years ago. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We did an interview, I think with him, but um, yeah. yeah. So, so Michael Howell's kind of known as like the the liquidity guy. So like he, you know, he'll go on, you know, macro voices and Grant Williams podcast and all that stuff. So um, yeah, he's just kind of, he came out in Jack Farley's interview and has a couple of great charts, but basically showing, you know, the feds toolkit has created quote unquote stealth liquidity. Uh, so he's noting that he's, you know, in his research and data is showing a rebound in the liquidity cycle which he argues supports the new bull market, and he, and he thinks quantitative easing is actually going to come back. Um, and so, yeah, he's got a whole bunch of basically. Long story short, is he's got a whole bunch of liquidity measures showing that, uh, you know, despite interest rates still increasing, the Fed raising rates and whatnot, is is that liquidity is actually increasing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you have to view the Fed in the American market different than the, you know, the Canadians and then the Brits and everything else. Because there's so many things going on behind the scenes. As, as you mentioned, is liquidity being provided to the to the commercial banks? You know, are they still lending to each other? Can the big funds borrow and, and lend without moving the needle? And then of course, you know, we have this, you know, enormous shift going into private credit, you know, and so far this year. And if all of a sudden now we have all the central banks raising hiking rates again, I, you know, we, we continue to, we, we don't hold any, any exposure to credit right now. Um, so that, that's a strategy we have on deck. It's something we're going to be extremely excited to start allocating towards, but we think we'll get in at, you know, 20, 30% lower than, than where everything is right now. But you are right, Steve, like they're trying to, slow down the economy, create a soft landing and make sure all these, you know, wheels behind the scene, you know, keep, keep moving around. Rich, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you, do you follow any sort of, you know, uh, global liquidity index, you know, indicators, anything of that nature that that's kind of flagged your radar? Yeah, I do. I think that there's like one chart that it's been going around. It's basically plots the S&P 500 with the, that global in liquidity thing that you can find on the Bloomberg. And it's basically just tracked perfectly. And it makes me question what I do every morning and every day with my life because uh, it's just worked so well. And it's basically explained sort of all of the the returns. Um, just to remind everybody, you know, it's the, the, the price earnings ratio is going up. The earnings have been flat. Um, and so you, people are just basically paying for paying more for the, the same amount of earnings as those expectations get priced in. There's different ways to do liquidity. One way I learned at my old job was sort of doing the money supply relative to sort of industrial production, um, which was like a one way to calculate liquidity. Um, another way to think about liquidity is also like, you know, you loans, like the, the discount window. So a couple weeks ago when every or months ago when everybody's worried about the SVB and all these regional banks, they all went to the discount window 
and the Fed provided liquidity, you know, and then and then you can see that 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 number is coming down. But I would disagree with that gentleman. I can't remember what his name is, and we'll get into the Michael Fed later. Howell? But yeah, so I think the the issue I think the one what I actually think they're going to do is probably accelerate Q, QT because what I think that they need to do is so like is raise the long end of the curve. And you can see what's been happening today, which is we'll get into it. Sorry for front running, but basically Powell said, you know, we're not going to ever cut rates again, blah, blah, blah. Who knows? But I think in order to, and then you see the, the market reaction, I think in order to accelerate that long end of the curve going up, I think that they're going to accelerate QT. Remember when the Fed changed, when all central banks changed their interest rate policy at the short end, and we know that the short end is sort of dislocated for mortgage rates, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways. And so that's why well, I actually I disagree with that guy. I think they're going to accelerate that that tightening and quantitative quantitative tightening, and so and try to push up the long end of the curve, which will really I think uh, accelerate what Keith's been talking about for a long time, which is slowing down credit growth, which is already happening by the way, uh, but but further slowing it down and creating that that yes. re reduction in liquidity. So yeah, you and, you, you and Michael Howe essentially be in complete odds of what what he is sort of. I suppose I think he's in style rather than in style rather than substance. I would say, right? Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, I think that's the the whole point of having you know a debate is just to have two opposing views. I mean, that's kind of what makes a market, right? I mean, it's yeah, what makes it interesting. Exactly. It's kind of interesting because what you just said, Powell indicated, you know, we're we're not going to cut rates for a long, long time. It's just th three years ago. Remember all the central banks? Yeah, saying, well, that's hey, we're, that was we're the joke. Never yeah. raising rates, so you know, it, it is a pendulum going back and forth, and. You know, we are, you know, reaching this extreme moment here again, which I think is coming back to the bond market. I know, Steve, you know, you're, look, you're talking about the three and five year all the time you know, from a housing perspective for Canada. Uh, you know, we look at the 10 year, of course, as the benchmark, the bond market. But in Canada, the 10 year has been, you know, going back, we're from around 2.7 up to 3.5. That's where we're going. It's three times now. It's not in that 3.5, 3, 3.6 number over the last few months. So we're at the point where, you know, we're either going to, the 10-year will just break out higher still. So anyone, you know, in the because remember the bond market now is down about 5% over the last uh, couple of months. And that's because the 10-year moving up and down and, and spreads getting a little bit wider. But I think it goes back to this conversation. I know we introduced the, a few quarters ago that, you know, the reason the yield curve is inverted because there should be a recession coming. And I, I know for us as, as a firm, we uh, we went long duration about four, maybe five months ago. And about, uh, so that's the benefit from uh, long-term rates going lower. But that's what we expected to happen based on a recession coming into play or expectations that it would happen. And that was working now. And then about three weeks ago, uh, I know, I, you know, I'm always a bit coy sometimes in the podcast about what we're doing for our clients. Um, because they're our clients. <laughs> We're gonna wanna manage their money first. But uh, we actually reversed, reversed that trade about a, a few weeks ago to actually benefit from you know, the bond market coming down in value and, and rates going higher. So now we're back to that pivotal point again, Rich. Are we gonna get a recession? Is it coming? And the Canadians are saying, uh-uh, it ain't coming. Right. The Fed, is, yeah, the Fed is saying, no way, that ain't coming. The Brits have gone from we're going to have the worst uh, economy, you know, since since Churchill was around, uh, for all the reasons, of course, and uh, to now they're they're expecting there's going to be a booming economy. The, the Europeans they don't see a downturn. So when you get everyone on one side of the boat lined up, 
then you know, okay, maybe we actually will see something breaking here soon. So uh, I'm not saying that we, we've changed our duration strategy yet, but we're not, we're no longer positioned for it because uh, it just got overpriced a few weeks back. Yeah, there's just a lot of volatility. I mean, speaking just on the uh, on the rate side, yeah, Rich, you 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 are you of the view then basically that you think they're going to try to push the long end of the curve out, so basically higher yields essentially, which I, I, I again very much could be possible. I think would the intention well, I mean, of doing would the intention of doing that be like, hey, we need to break something? I guess the problem is it's 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 contradictory from the word go, right? So in, ab in abstract, why would yields, bond yields go off, up? Bond yields would go up because, you know, people are less worried about a recession, et cetera, right? They're less worried about weak growth, right? When growth slows, you buy bonds, you sell equities, right? This is like broad strokes here. Don't, don't at me, I'm just saying. And so, or, I mean, you could be worried about inflation or you could be worried about central bank policy rates. There's all these sort of secondary issues, but, you know, it's it's tough, right? There are two sort of contra contradictory like arguments, right? If you think that bond yields are going, if you think that the growth is going to be very poor and then you're going to have a recession, then you want to be buying bonds. So you want to buy the price, price goes up, yield goes down. And the opposite is true. You know, if you're not so worried about growth, then you'll sell the bonds, price goes down, yields go up. So that's where, but I, I but this yield curve com is completely unsustainable for banks. And we know that if you and we know we've talked about the households and how where they're sort of leveraged to and tied to, which is, you know, not the front end. Um, and I think that that's I think that what the last three or four weeks has showed us is the Fed is very concerned about people pricing in cuts and they want to shake that out. And so on Keith mentioned, you know, three years ago, three years ago is about forward guidance, convincing every single person in the world that they're never going to raise rates ever again, ever again. And what happened is the expectations got pushed further and further and further out and the yield curve sort of followed from their bully pulpit. And I sort of see the parallel now, which is they're saying, well, they're never going to cut rates ever, ever again. And the opposite's now happening where you have the yield curve starting to creep back higher to follow again that bully pulpit, that like forward, they're not calling it forward guidance, but that's basically what it is. And I think, so that's, so you've got these two, you know, two contrasting forces. I know that was a very kind of cumbersome answer, but that's sort of how I feel. That's yeah, exactly um, how I feel, excuse me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, speaking of rates and stuff, you've got, so as of right now, as of today, um, looks like the bank of the traders are pricing two more rate hikes from the Bank of Canada by October now. It's funny uh, how things change. <laughs> crazy, right? I mean, what we were talking about, you know, traders pricing in cuts, what, four weeks ago? Uh, I think we had, what, one cut, two cuts this year. And now we're talking about two more hikes. So, I mean, I, obviously this can change with incoming data, but... Um, you know, I, I always look at it and say, gosh, like, again, when the data changes, if we actually do get two more hikes. I mean, yeah, well, okay, what does that do to the housing market? Of course, it changes the trajectory. Uh, you know, you'd be talking about variable rate mortgages with a seven in front of it, um, which is crazy. I mean, 7% on a variable rate mortgage, that's what private lenders, you could have got a private loan, you know, 18 months ago at 6%. So but private mean private mean non 
non six banks you mean sorry private not, being like hey Rich, not my mom. i need a mortgage can you give me some money <laughs> okay cool not my not so like the big six not maria diaz <laughs> yeah exactly but like okay, even okay. uh you know i can tell you even on the uh on the b side here uh so the b side would be like your home capital group and okay. your um home capital and equity equitable um basically so they they're like one below like the big banks so basically yeah. you know self-employed people that sort of nature um so right now um if a borrower so those loans are typically one to two year terms they don't do like five year loans at these b lenders uh so one year terms renewing today they're roughly about 200 basis points higher uh and if you took out a two year from a b lender uh, and you're renewing today, you're at about a 500 basis point increase. Quick question. Do those, did those spreads go up or down over the last like three years or two years or whatever? Uh, yeah, they would have gone down. Right. So. Okay. The spreads have actually compressed. Interesting. Okay. Well, what do you mean by that? Sorry. Like, so, sorry. So let me rephrase. So now it's 200 basis points. What a year ago was oh, no, no. it? So, yeah, sorry. What I'm saying is like, okay, let's say you went, you went to get a mortgage, and you know you can't get approved at RBC, so you go to yeah. a B lender because you're self-employed and you don't have a great yeah. income tracker, whatever. Uh, so these these B lenders, Home Capital Group, for example, will give you, let's say, a two-year loan. They'll give you, say, so you know, I don't know, would have been maybe two years ago, maybe been four percent. And so today you're renewing, you know, tack on 500 basis points to that. Crazy. Okay, cool. And what are they, what are they offering for similar uh, GIC rates? Because they need to get the capital, you know. To, yeah, to they, well, I mean, I know like they've got some promotions and stuff. It seems like they're advertising about 5% for like a one-year fixed GIC, give or take. Well, that, that's not too much higher than what the uh, the big six are offering. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the point being is that like, I think you're just going to see the stress. Like, and people always say like, oh, how did housing go up in the spring? You know, like prices basically ripped back to all-time highs. Where's the money coming from? We have to understand like it was predominantly an inventory story, right? Like scarcity of new listings, people still need to transact. I still think, you know, per the Bank of Canada's own research is one third of mortgages have seen a payment increase. So two thirds of people have not been impacted. Sorry, I just want to say, so in the UK, that's blow. That story's blowing up. That is like front page news. So today, when they re we're gonna Keith is gonna go through all the different central bank stuff. But like today, like that is like literally on the front page news that like our our mortgage holder is gonna get screwed by this new interest rate because like in Canada, all those mortgage rates are sort of rolling over and getting refixed at much 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 higher rates. I, yeah, I want I want to get into that because like that's sorry, like the sorry. big thing, right? Is like okay, everybody in Canada has a variable rate mortgage has been triggered. Okay, so like the, it, now the banks again have distressed listing that would have come to market didn't come to market because most of the products are these fixed payment structures and they're basically just deferring everybody's interest. Their amortizations are blowing out, and like this is really not a problem unless and until if rates stay long, longer for or higher for a prolonged period of time this becomes a much, much larger issue. In the near term, over the next three, six, nine months, it, it's not really an issue. But as rates stay higher for longer, and that's the big question mark, it becomes a bigger story. And so, you know, like I said, one third of mortgages have seen a payment increase. So you still have two thirds that haven't. And then you still have a whole bunch of homeowners, which I think in Canada is like 35% of people that own their primary residence are mortgage free. 
So you have a lot of cohort of society that hasn't actually felt the full impact of these rate hikes. So I still think, great, the Bank of Canada wants to keep going. Get it, totally fine. I just think, I personally think they're looking in the rearview mirror. These these issues will show up, you know, 12 months from now. Keith? I remember as well, um, so all of these central banks hiking rates, but they're also talking to the commercial banks. So, I mean, obviously in, in, in the UK today, this morning, they would have been chatting with the big guys there. And they asked them the question, hey, what happens with the book if we hike by 50 basis points? What happens if you do 25? What happens if expectations are for this? What the yield curve does that? And so obviously they're hearing from the commercial banks that right now we're okay. We, we can absorb that. It's not going to be a big challenge for us. And that will give the central banks the green light to keep going. Again, like I, I think right now the central banks, they put up this big sign that, that says, hey, we're now desperate. You know, we... We've been using all these pickup lines. Nothing's been working. <laughs> the economy lower. <laughs> no one's listening. So uh, you know that's. You now we're. Um, you guys watch Seinfeld? You guys never heard? Yeah, of, that show. of course. Yeah, a few years back. Yeah, love uh, it. But you know the, the the guy George. He's one of my favorite guys on it. And uh, you know he was a hothead. And all of a sudden, you know, then he'd say, "We're going to bring it up a notch." And, you know that's what's happening now with the central banks. They're going to bring it up a notch. Until you know they got a show if there is a horse named like Prickly Pete or something like that, and I, I again I just think it's just we're in this incredibly amazing market, and I don't mean this in any way for anyone who's you know they're they're, they're struggling to buy a home or to, to sell this or that. Just from a pure global macro perspective, everything has now been synchronized once again, and it hasn't been synchronized so that we're going to relieve stress. It's we're going to create even more stress yeah. in the marketplace because it, like if, if we were central bankers, we'd be looking at this and say, you know what? We've gone zero to 5%. Nothing's Everyone's broken. Okay. Yeah, S&P is going to hit 4,500. The S&P is going to hit yeah, 4,500, man. It's going to keep going. So they'll, you know, we'll, we'll keep going with it here some more. Um, and now again, so it's, you know, and, and, the bond market will eat everything. The bond market was showing a recession because it was pricing in rate cuts coming up. The reason it was pricing in rate cuts was because it was the expectation we're going to have a recession. You know, it's all connected yeah. here. Now, all of a sudden, the expectation is maybe we won't get a recession. So maybe, as, as Rich mentioned, maybe we do get this magical, you know, Bigfoot riding a unicorn kind of economy. <laughs> Yeah. And, Goldie, what is it? The uh, Goldilocks, like uh, soft landing? Is that what? Yeah, something like that. But, uh, you know, maybe the whole world is going, you know, is turning into Moab in, in a way. Well, but so, I, I mean, love it. But from a, an investment perspective, you know, the, the way it works in the bond market, everyone's always reaching for yield. You know, now they can pick up yield because the rates have, you know, come off from zero. But there's still a lot of people out there that are still stuck in the high yield bond world without even realizing they are. And when we do get a, another credit event happening, and depending on how big and strong and, and, and wide it is, it, it could create this like spectacular moment where, you know, as a retail investor, you're going to be able to go in and you buy, you know, one of the high yield bond funds, and it's going to be showing a yield of 14, 15%, you know, something like that. 
Um, you know, all the private equity guys will be lining up and then the pension funds and so forth. But that's that's one of the markets we have on our desk right now. We're, we're not touching it at this point because we continue to believe that we are headed for a recession. It, it's going to come. It's Maybe it's getting pushed around a little bit. But if the central banks are desperate enough to break the economy, to bring inflation data down, they will do it. it, it it's going to happen. Well, can I interject just before you go on, Steve? I just think from my perspective, I, I agree, I guess, in, in part. But I think what's interesting is also just the complacency. So different ways that you measure complacency and stress are like the VIX volatility index, high yield bond spreads. So the spread over a similar duration corporate uh, government bond. You have X, FX volatility. You have uh, volatility indexes for bonds. You have implied volatility, which is just a math I don't understand. You have stress, you know, interbank stress. You have CDS, so uh, credit default swaps, all that. And then the dollar, you could argue, is a volatility. And all of those indexes and indices and measures are all sort of making fresh lows as credit starts to slow, rates get higher, the labor market is tightening. And that... Like that juxtaposition between sort of market complacency and a and a world where central banks are desperate to create a recession, I think is fascinating. Sorry, Steve, uh, you wanted to say something. Well, yeah, just on the um, on the central bank front, um, you know, you're talking about the S and P, you know, approaching those those highs there, and like, you know, same thing on like the housing front. I mean, you know, we talked about it. I think it was like three or four months ago and I had it on my show and stuff, but there was, you know, a couple you know, reports coming out this year of, you know, a lot of the sort of, I guess, market pumpers, but like, Oh, you know, how housing in Canada, you know, it's going to rebound and then rates are going to get, they, rates are going to get cut this summer. And it's like, yeah, but like if housing is accelerating higher and, and national housing data was going up 2% per month, if you start going 2% a month. Well, okay. That's 24% a year. That's, it's 24, 24%. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's, that, that's a big jump. Like why, if you're the Bank of Canada, well, why would I be cutting rates? And so it was always kind of going to meet that, meet that sort of match. And so one of the things is the Bank of Canada actually published a couple of days ago, they published their, their meeting minutes. So I guess this is new for the BOC trying to create transparency. You know, the Fed does it. Uh, the Bank of Canada just just started with this. So in their notes that they say, well, part of our reason or decision to raise interest rates in June was, and I quote, they say, housing resale prices, which feed into the CPI with a one-month lag, had increased for three consecutive months. So they flagged housing resale prices as one of the reasons uh, they decided to raise rates. And so, you know, um, yeah, the resiliency in the housing market um, ultimately, you know, created its own demise. Can I ask you a question? I didn't read it. Sorry, full disclosure. Did they mention anything to do with uh, domestic demand or population growth and uh, or, I, and or uh, budget deficits? Did they mention budget deficits? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. Sorry, I, I put I you on the spot sk- I, kinda, I did kind of skim through it and I was looking for the housing piece. And uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm so, sorry. I didn't mean to I mean, put you on the spot. I mean, that's a great question. I know that they have, me- I know they did mention consumer demand. Like retail spending, which, you know, to your point, obviously remains surprisingly resilient. I, I'm it's not surprising. Sad. I was so annoyed about that Bloomberg article. They, they sorry, for people who don't know, retail sales came in 1.1% month over month. That's tough to look at a monthly series for 40, 40 million people, whatever. Of course it went up. We have huge population growth. What matters is well, per point, capita yeah. spending. But anyways, let's let's move on. Sorry, but, sorry. I mean, I, and that's exactly my point. I just think like, Keith, I'm curious your thoughts. 
I think there's like this narrative out there that, you know, we're not in a recession. Everybody keeps talking about it and just never, it's not seeming to happen. The data is holding up. And I don't know. I just feel like anecdotally, like, I think a lot of Canadians are are worse off and they're feeling it, right? They're going to the grocery store, you know, they're, they're paying off their variable rate mortgage or their home equity line, whatever they've got. I, I just, I'm struggling to think like this, oh, this resilient economy, it's just so strong. I just... I just, I don't, I don't really see it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, you know, in every economy, it's always going to have a certain portion that are always doing well, no matter what. And there's always going to be a, a portion, you know, it, it, it's always a, a bit of a grind and, and a struggle. But the, you know, the, the aggregate data that's coming out and top down that the Bank of Canada is using, it, it's suggesting that things are okay. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it, it's, it's not negative. So that's why they feel like, yeah, we can do this and, and do that to try to slow things down. But it, it's expensive. Like, in, in, you know, these inflation numbers that we talk about, does it really matter what they are? It not really is the trend they're looking at. But you're trying to buy food these days and you're like, okay, am I going to get, you know, the tomahawk steak or am I going to go for the, you know, the pork cutlets? And it's a huge Oscar Meyer wieners. Yeah, and uh, so to answer your question, I, I think a lot of people are struggling quite a bit. Uh, people are doing working multiple jobs, working all day, and then they're you know driving a car at night and, and things like that, because because the price of everything has gone up dramatically. And, and as everyone knows, if they do get inflation out of that you know that unicorn number, you know two percent or whatever they want to get it to, it, it doesn't mean that prices are coming down. It means that it's not increasing enough. So yeah, see, but we, we have this economy now where headline numbers are telling everyone, hey, it's it's not bad. Everyone's working, everyone's buying. But underneath it's I think it is is a struggle. And and that's why, you know, we are quite concerned, you know, that that's something will of course i think did, i think did you actually did you did to, you see that uh did you see that sorry to interrupt you did you see that report from uh from costco costco ceo no but i love this is important walmart well, costco kmart these are all very important bellwethers yeah so i mean the ceo came out uh i think it was a couple of weeks ago basically noting that uh they're seeing in their in their sales data um customer preferences for for meat selections changing uh and they said that's that, a big uh, one yeah, so we're seeing some switch to, to canned products like canned chicken, canned tuna, things like that, um, and they're changing. Yeah, so he says, historically, we've always seen, like within fresh protein, we've always seen when there's a recession, whether it was 99, 2000, 08, 09, 2010, we'd see some sales penetration shift from beef to poultry to pork, and we've seen some of that now. That's called the substitution sense. effect. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Maybe that's a pickup line you can use. <laughs> hey, baby, do you know what a substitution effect is? Yeah, it's the decrease in sales when a product is more expensive. It, it People switch to cheaper alternatives. So, Very straightforward. It actually means Sorry, someone Keith. else. It actually means someone else besides you. Right? Yeah, substitution. Inflation hack. You know, you just go and eat at uh, Costco. You had the dollar fifty hot dogs. They haven't changed in price in like twenty years. So I think the other thing we need to, we need to, to realize is that uh, it was five years ago yesterday that Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, is that her name? Oh, no, you're going the down this, this path. The young lady. Oh, boy. Well, five years ago, she's, 
she didn't suggest she was quite specific that you know if if you don't Stop you want me to read it for energy, you? Basically, yeah, read it out specifically. <laughs> then the world is going to end. Well, what is the quote, Steve? You can put it up on the screen as well. <sighs> she quotes, she says, a top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. Okay, so here we are, five years plus one day. You know, still a few fossil fuels are, are being used up around here so like some people interpret that as oh the world was going to end yesterday I, I sort of read it as we had five years to stop using them and that hasn't happened so Coal maybe that's just why had a record high yeah so maybe this is why you know the central banks are just gonna say hey screw it the world's going to end anyway and we're going to go hiking galore people are still going to keep shopping and everything mm. but it's you know it, it's one of these things for this you know this, this young lady you know she's taken advantage of Maybe there's a prime minister at a very large Western world country has also been taken advantage of. You know, we're, we're going down these experimental roads with all this fiscal spending at, at the same time. I know I'm going off a little bit with the whole well, thing here, but. Did you want to talk on uh, <laughs> Canada's oil production by 2050? Well, tell us what the report says and then I will weigh in. Okay, I'll read it. It's from a CBC <laughs> News article. Um, Canada's oil output would plummet by 2050 in a net zero world new modeling shows. Uh, so new modeling from the Canada Energy Regulator suggests Canadian oil production will plummet by 2050 and large portions of Alberta's oil sands facilities will be shut down if the world is successful in reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions within that time. Um, yeah, essentially, essentially says that we're screwed. Um, so... Okay, well, that's not happening. Uh, Canada produces 4.6 million barrels of oil. Uh, we are the fourth largest producer of oil after US, Saudi, Russia. Uh, fifth, I think, is China, and then sixth is Iran and Iraq. Uh, Canadian, uh, the global oil consumption is 100 million barrels of oil a year. One barrel is about 159 liters of oil. Sorry, excuse me, excuse me, 100 million barrels per day. Sorry, sorry. That's a very, very important screw up that I did. 100 million barrels per day. One barrel of oil is 159 liters. That number is, is going up. The reason that number is going up is because two countries with the largest population centers in the world. So China with whatever 1.3 billion in India, which I think has more people now than in China, but or they will next year or whatever it is. So China consumes 15.5 million barrels of oil a day. India consumes 5 million barrels of a day. The US, for all you know, people's misgivings, basically has consumed the same amount for years and years and years, and it's quite, been quite flat. This is absolute nonsense, uh, and people should really wrap their heads around the fact that oil is really, really here to stay. Uh, that being said, I saw some great article, great stats on the uh, renewable energy generation, which is, to its credit, growing at 15% compound annual growth rate. So wind generation, I think globally is around 2000 terawatt hours. So just to give you an idea, so the US total terawatt consumption is about 4200. So globally, wind generation is about half that solar is up to 1500. And, you know, so there is a huge push for solar power and, 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 and renewables. I get all that. 
the idea that we're just going to stop consuming oil, I think, is just that is just gobbledygook. With any luck, we'll stop consuming coal. But don't you think? Sorry, though, I mean, it goes back to the Greta Thunberg, you know, tweet that was. I mean, she had the world rage. You know, schools around the world were shut for the day. They go out and you know parade and recognize what was happening. And now, you know, years later, you know, the whole thing is now deleted. It'll be conveniently forgotten about. And then we get another similar kind of headline news, which I think is irresponsible for this story to come out the, the way it is. So the, you know, that, that theme, you know, the whole theme about trying to crush oil, this, you know, in, in that direction, because it affects us here in Canada dramatically. Because as you've discussed before, Rich, you look at what the net exports are for Canada, uh, fixed capital investment and, and stuff like that. If you take oil away, we're, we're, we're done. I mean, it, it ain't going to be very positive for us here in Canada. Um, but, you know, you continue to see these outrageous headline stories and no one is allowed to call them on it. Or if they do, it's, you know, you're considered to be, you know, fringe and Moab and, and stuff like that. But it's, I think we do need to realize and understand that oil is not going anywhere. And, and perhaps some of the greatest investment opportunities coming up, if they continue, will be in that space, that sort of stranded, you know, asset that space that's coming up. So I, I love the fact that, you know, Steve, you and Rich are able to bring up, find these stories, continue to talk about it, you know, bring it to the forefront. And then when the other side of it is, you know, not working out, it is false. We, it's, it's the duty of the media to call policymakers on it when they make a wrong headline story or they're going in the wrong direction. And we've had that pendulum really strong to one side over the last five, eight years now. And I, I suggest it is probably going to move back the other direction. It kind of feels like it is moving back. Well, and, like I think well, it just in, swung so far in one direction. I think like it is to me, it feels that way anyways. Well, as an example, I, I try to, you know, I rented the car. So we, we started this trip in, in Las Vegas, but that's where you launch in, into Utah. Oh, I saw the Stanley Cup parade, by the way. Cool. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because if you've ever been to Vegas, so the strip is just packed with people and the strip is shut down and the parade is going up and there's thousands of people there. And there were probably a couple hundred hockey fans. They didn't care. <laughs> they're still out there. They're well, they're there for the party. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They don't care what the party is, and, and it's there. But the, back to the you know, in the example, you know, you're you're you know, you're going to rent a car, you know, to uh, start at one one place, and we're dropping this off in in Denver. And the car they keep trying to rent me was an e vehicle, electric car. And I'm looking at this. Something Boomer doesn't like that. that. Well, we're in. You're going through Utah like for nine hours in the desert. Like, you're not going to try on a charger. You don't see any other cars around. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Uh, I wouldn't. I, I have a Tesla, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't roll the dice on that. Guys, my battery uh, might die here uh -oh. soon. Yeah. You didn't bring your you charger. Know. Yeah, I got to find it. We'll talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Talk guys I'm going to get a plug and plug it in. You guys. He's trying to get out of the podcast. Well, just like I just think it's important that Canadians realize that. I'm very, very proud of Canada's welfare state, uh, despite what people might think of my political leadings. I think it's important and I think it's it should be well funded. Uh, if you if Canada did not have oil, uh, given the debt to GDP ratios for non-financial corporations, households and governments, given our lack of productivity growth, uh, we would not be able to fund the generous welfare state 
that we are so lucky and privileged to have. This is just facts. And the idea that we can move away from this without spending on research and development is, is totally and absolutely bananas. I think the other thing that I would argue that people don't really want to admit is, you know, US has been an incredible sort of example in how you reduce your global emissions. So in 2007, the US produced 6 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide every year. That number is down to 4.7. So let's say less than 20% decrease. This is while GDP per capita has risen, GDP has risen, the tech boom, all these wonderful economic variables have gone up. The way the US was able to lower their emissions while maintaining one of the most dynamic economies in the world was due to fracking and the exploitation of their natural gas resources. Natural gas produces 50 to 60, depending on your source, percent less carbon emissions than coal. Natural gas killed coal. Thanks, Obama. What we're seeing in Europe is to is to be and the antithesis of a logical and measured and realistic step to reduce emissions in the world. If you really, in abstract, cared about lowering emissions, you would be for exploiting natural gas resources to the extent that you were able to do so. Canada, I think, is the 15th largest reserves in the world. We, you can use tar sands and convert that into natural gas. And you would do everything in your power to exploit that natural gas resource and ship it to places like China. And in 2022, China built 102 coal power plants in one year. That's more than, I think, every other country in the world combined. And so, but what has the Netherlands done? They've just, they're about to mothball their largest natural gas field. What has the UK done? They've banned fracking and the exploitation of their natural gas resources. And Canada, I mean, Canada's uh, refinery throughput is this 1.6 or 1.7, and that's the exact same number that it was in 1990. And so again, dogma and a lack of clarity with respect to the numbers affects the what I think should be the goal, which is to lower emissions. And natural gas is part of that. And I think it's important that people recognize that. And you're right, Keith. People don't look at the data. They just parrot easy slogans. And I think those easy slogans will lead us, in my view, down a, a you know down into hell or whatever. But I, I just, it's important that people get that. Natural gas killed coal. The U.S.'s emissions are lower because of natural gas. Fracking killed coal. Sorry. Hey, Rich, why don't you uh, explain why they're against natural gas? I don't think, I think people may not people may not realize why they're not willing to expand it further in some countries. There's, I think, the broader view that fuel, uh, carbon, uh, sorry, fossil fuels must be stopped no matter what, which I think is again a completely insane and just detached from reality. It's they're not going away. Crude oil is super super useful. Um, and then there's the sort of the more narrow NIMBY view, which is worries about earthquakes and water and, and things. And the water bit, I get there are some real sensitive issues with respect to that. But I think that that, that I mean, ultimately, that's the thing, this idea that under no circumstance can these countries produce 
fossil fuels and they're doing the part. The reality is it doesn't matter what the Netherlands does. Climate change will be solved in Asia. Um, and if we don't get China off coal, it does not matter what happens in Europe or in Canada or whatever. And the way that you can help China getting off coal is by retrofitting all of these coal power plants to burn natural gas, which is relatively easy from an engineering standpoint. And and I don't know if I answered your question, Keith. But isn't isn't China trying to hold that kind of over like our heads or like the U.S. heads of like, hey, you give me this or we won't, you know, participate or accommodate to your, you know, environmental goals? Ultimately, it's the global, what people call the global south versus the global north, which is another euphemism. People don't like emerging and developing countries. They used to be called the third world and the first world. It's all the same thing. It's rich countries versus poor countries. And poor countries are demanding that if you're not going to let Nigeria exploit its natural resources, I think Nigeria has one of the largest oil reserves in the world, well, then you need to pay them. Understandably so. I, I disagree. I don't. I don't think you can keep... Or people from wanting to improve their lot in life. I think that that's A, immoral, B, impossible, and C, counterproductive. I think the way that we're going to get out of this is through technology, through nuclear power, maybe through wind and through through solar. But it, it's, it's not helpful to lie to yourself. I don't think whether you're an aspiring hockey player or a portfolio manager, whether you're out on the, on the nightlife trying to find someone to love, Lying to yourself is not an effective strategy to reach your goal. And if the goal is to lower emissions, then natural gas is part of that 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 reality. Yeah, it's interesting to see, um, you know, from a larger, bigger picture perspective, you know, how governments are getting involved in this now. And, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of narratives, but you're seeing, you know, we had, uh, you know, the Trudeau government, uh, you know, provide that large subsidy to Volkswagen for their battery power plants. Uh, and now we actually had, I think it was Ford today, uh, received a $9.2 billion uh, grant for an EV battery power plant in the US. So the US kind of ramping up trying to, I guess, compete or outbid, you know, the Canadians. But from from that perspective, I find it interesting that, you know, this comes back to sort of Russell Napier, what he's talked about is, is we're seeing this environment now, which is this credit creation um you've got to fix your sound steve sorry to interrupt you yeah government basically allocating credit and and where they want to point capital to sort of pick the winners and and losers right and obviously that's uh sort of trying to starve the oil and gas industry and and promote sort of wind solar electric vehicles um so it kind of comes this overarching view of of governments getting more sort of in the way, not only from federal deficit spending. So, you know, allocating, you know, to social programs, but to, to certain companies. And, and so it does create a very, very interesting environment moving forward. And certainly you can argue that a lot of government spending is of of course has created, you know, inflation and, and higher interest rates. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I think it creates a very interesting environment moving forward. You left out ESG, of course, because it is wrapped up. I know we keep coming back to the same themes all the time, but again, everything is is tied up together here. Um, yeah, you know, there she was. There I, she I have was. a different. I, I know we have to go soon, but I have a different view on this. I think the idea that governments kickstart programs in is not in and of itself a bad thing. The space program, oh, yeah. the space program. You know, John F. Kennedy basically said on a lark. 
that thing. Let's go to that big, like round cheese thing. Like the the knock on effects from an engineering, technological, com- computational tang. Uh, uh, what is it called? Diapers. I mean, I mean, I'm joking, but there was incredible amounts of you know, uh, knock positive knock on effects that the government spending and directing government funds that cannot be underwritten by private companies were positive. Governments decided that they should do the Panama Canal. You know, if it wasn't for the Panama Canal, you know, that was basically subsidized and funded and underwritten by the American taxpayer, we would not have saved literally trillions of miles and, you know, of and money and whatever it is. And so it's not the, or like, you know, Eisenhower building the, the interstate. I mean, you know, the, you know, or a government re like, yeah, or Rich, trying to, Rich, you're it's on a not good role, always bad. You're on a good role. It, it, you're, so I'm just saying it's not all bad. That's all I'm saying. It's not always bad. Correct. I think though, so, but all, all these, you know, you know, big and wonderful, you know, items that, that you just listed, they're all 1% correct. Th- those are projects that the private sector are just going to say, we, we just can't, we don't have the capital to do it. So that's where the government has to go in place. I think the struggle or the challenge today that governments are now extending their reach into markets where they shouldn't be. So for I example, when they're, when they're directing banks that, hey, you should lend to this group, but not to that group. Uh, we need to make sure that this part of the economy is getting money and that part is not getting any money. Uh, and if anyone is talking about it online, then you know we won't let that voice get heard. And, and it, uh, you know that, that's the real challenge is that- I think- that was kind of like my overarching point is more like they've kind of discovered the printing press more or less. And they're, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a slippery slope. So we'll, we'll kind of say, Rich, that kind of brings me to the, to the point, I think to kind of, as we get close to wrapping this up, but I'd be curious your thoughts just on, uh, you know, the UK, uh, today, you know, the bank of England raising rates, 50 basis points, sort of surprising markets. Curious if you were surprised and it's, it's weird because I feel like, you know, Inflation clearly is is it is coming down in most parts of the world, but it seems stickier in the UK. Like it seems like you guys are still dealing with very very elevated inflation. So inflation in the UK has always been kind of higher for the last let's say twenty years or whatever, and I think that that's I mean that that that's probably right. I stole this from somebody online, then I, I can't remember what their name is, so I apologize. I can't attribute it to him, but their argument was like I think the Bank of England is like quote unquote front loading this these increases, which is to say, which is actually what you guys have said. I think Steve, you mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I know Steve has said this before uh, Keith has said this before, which is why don't they just why raise 25 basis points a month? You should raise it one percent or what have you and just get it over with. And I think that that's what the gentleman said on on Twitter. I can't remember his damn name, but anyways, and I, I think that that's that's really what they're doing. I mean, they, they as Keith rightly stated months and months ago, maybe last year, they're trying to curb demand. And this is the way that they feel that they can do it. Unlike in the US, mortgage rates are attached to the front end of the curve. And I think genuinely raising rates will have a material impact on demand. And so is it right? Is it wrong? You know, as Keith always tells us, it's not that important what you think should happen. It's what will happen. What's happening with their housing market over there? Year on year, it's down. But it's had a, you know, year on year, it's down. I'm looking at it right now, you know, three, two percent year on year. It's so it had like did it had a, it's similar to here. I suppose yeah. it had a bit of a resurgence in the spring yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But immigration's really strong. It's hilarious. Like we don't talk about Brexit too much. 
one of the main reasons for Brexit was they wanted to look lower immigration. <laughs> that didn't happen at all. Immigration is the exact same. I'm laughing because it's just so ridiculous. But like, yeah, I mean, immigration in London is good. Rents are ripping in London and 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 we'll see. I think rates are going to go way back up. In, in the UK, and they're gonna they're gonna induce a recession, as Keith has, I think, rightly said for a year now that that's their goal. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to kind of summarize, it's just been very very surprising, uh, not just in Canada but in all parts of the world that things are still kind of holding on. I mean, actually, Rich, to your to your point, it's interesting because like they basically kind of blew up the gilt market there for a little bit, and I guess suppose we've moved past that, and they're back on their you know, rate hiking crusade. Yeah, I can't speak to that. I think Keith has a better view of, of that kind of thing. But like, just because things thoughts, take, Keith? yeah, Keith, tell us, tell us, tell, you what. tell us, old tell, man. You what. tell us, boomer, <laughs> educate us. <laughs> well, once upon a time when I was a little boy, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the thing, the thing with the UK that's just so interesting. And the same with everywhere, you know, we, you know, we hang on everywhere from the central bankers because, you know, they're supposed to be this you know, highly held group and, and they are, I mean, that's, I mean, we're entrusting to make a lot of decisions, but what the Bank of England has done compared to all the other central banks, they, they've, they've gone like a done, they've done a 180. They've gone from predicting a, a very severe recession is going to hit to now, we're not even close. We're just going to grow too fast, create too much inflation. We're going to break that. And that's happened in about, what, nine months, I, th I think, is the time frame for it. So that tells me they don't have a clue what's going on. They're, they're, they're not being proactive. They're just merely reacting. And they've been a pretty dramatic move with it today with that, that 50 basis points hike. And again, just go back to... Once again, central banks have synchronized and they synchronize through their hiking rates and markets are now that you have to react to that and, and adjust to it. And, you know, like we, we talked a little bit of conversation here now about, you know, what, what is the government getting into? What are they allowing to happen and not allowing to happen? Like I, I keep going back to the, uh, you know, the, the American credit crisis or housing crisis back in 0809, in that period. And, and people, when I say what I'm going to say, people are going to say, oh, you can't do that. But they, they should have let the losses occur around the world. And let, let's use Canada as an example here. They say, oh, you can't do that. You know, I say, yeah, let's say the Canadian banks all went under, for example. And all of a sudden, you know, the world said, well, you can't do that. There are losses. But I, I, I would say I would maintain that if that happened on a Friday, on Monday morning, you would put up a sign and say, hey, we're going to open up five Canadian banking licenses. Who wants to apply? Make sure you have, you know, several hundred billion in capital ready to go. The, the applications would have been filed by Tuesday morning. Like fresh capital would have come in, but policymakers today and the public sector, they, they don't want that to happen. They always want to continue to have no losses taking place because everything is combined. I mean, they, they all know each other and hang out, but that's, again, that's the road we're going on now. They, they want to break something, but they want to break it and have losses occur anywhere. And it, it doesn't exist. So, you know, it, it is this world with, you know, the Bigfoots and unicorns and UFOs. That's the world they're trying to create. And there's no free lunch. There's no free lunch. There's no free lunch. That's a good point. MMT, yeah. free money. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Keith's been 
gracious with his time here on his uh, vacation, uh, you know, getting away from all the unicorns and UFOs. So uh, yeah, you know, as always appreciate your guys' support. All we ask you share this episode with at least one friend, family member, give us a five-star review, whatever, leave us a comment in the Spotify, Apple, YouTube comments. Love to hear from you guys. Curious your thoughts, you know, housing, inflation, et cetera. And uh, as always, we'll see you next week.